welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm brighter, erstwhile DC Comics editor and secret bride of the faceless slaves of the Forbidden House, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert in love with a sentence, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Into the Night and Lost Hearts, issues 15 and 16 from the Sandman comic book series. Into the Night and Lost Hearts were written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. Xylenol did the colors, Todd Klein lettered. Into the Night was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Art Young. And Lost Hearts was edited by Karen Berger with Tom Pyre assisting. Covers by Dave McKean. Human beings are the creatures of desire. They twist and bend as I require it. Time to wake up. In Into the Night, Rose comes home from the hospital, exhausted, and each of her roommates, except Gilbert, give her what they feel are comforting words. She has a cup of tea, wishes her mom could be there, and goes up to bed where she tosses and turns. While Ken dreams of money and monsters, Barbie dreams of being in a magical world with a mystical creature named Martin Tenbones, living out a fantasy narrative in which she is the heroine. Chantal, one of the two spider women, is having a dream about having a relationship with a sentence that spent most of last year in Czechoslovakia, which then mixes with Zelda's dream of her mother's disapproval. Zelda dreams of herself as Alice in Wonderland, rejected by her parents and doomed to wander alone until Chantal finds her and becomes her new mother, who might also be her old mother. Hal dreams of Bette Midler, Judy Garland, and Marilyn Monroe. They're about to tell him their secret when he wakes up for a moment, then drops back to sleep where Judy as Dorothy tears off her face and becomes the Wicked Witch. Then she tears off that face and asks Hal for help as her hands are now full. And Rose tries to go to sleep as she mentally doom scrolls through the concerns of her life. Her mother telling her about Unity's stroke, the doctor saying it's amazing her brother is still alive. She tries to forget, but wonders briefly where Gilbert went as she finally falls asleep. Gilbert is at the hospital, sitting with Jed. In The Dreaming, Morpheus talks to Matthew the Raven about the Dream Vortex, which is also Rose Walker. The Vortex is growing. Matthew asks what that means, but Dream sends him to the hospital to bring someone to him, while he deals with the Vortex that is threatening the Dreaming. Ken dreams of sex. Barbie's adventures in the Porpentine with Martin Tenbones continues, where they are in danger from something called the Cuckoo, but Ken's dream starts to invade her dream space. Chantal dreams of a constantly restarting story that never completes, and that story starts shifts into Zelda's dream space. Hal dreams of an old boyfriend, and Rose dreams, and knows she's dreaming, and extends her consciousness into all the other dreams happening in the house all of them seeking a place to belong. She nudges the walls between the various dream spaces and they come down. Ken appears as a monster in Barbie's magical world. Chantal and Zelda hold on to each other, terrified, and see Rose. Hal calls out to Barbie and Ken, wondering who's dreaming. Rose watches it all, while Morpheus watches Rose. Rose's awareness of everyone dreaming spreads through the city, and she breaks down more walls as dreams integrate, changing the dreamers forever. Morpheus says enough and pulls Rose out. In the house, everyone wakes up to varying levels of dread. Hal goes to look for Rose, but she's not in her room. In England, Unity wakes up for a moment and tells Miranda that her doll's house should go to Rose, 
then falls back asleep. Morpheus pulls Rose into the greater dreaming where they can watch the tear and dream reality that Rose has created. At the hospital, Matthew the Raven, a dream who was a man, goes to Jed's room and finds Gilbert, a man who was a dream. They talk for a moment, and Matthew tells him that Rose is a vortex. Gilbert is alarmed. In order to deal with the vortex, Gilbert explains, Morpheus must kill Rose. To be continued. In Lost Hearts, we pick up with Rose, naked except for a strategically wrapped bedsheet, confronting Morpheus on a high, craggy peak in the dreaming. Morpheus tells Rose she's the vortex. This means that without intention, Rose breaks down the walls between dreamers' unconscious minds. Eventually, Rose will implode, causing irreparable damage to the dreaming. Morpheus reveals he once let a vortex destroy a world, which means that what threatens the dreaming also damages the waking world. As Rose grapples with the idea that the guy who saved her from Funland at the serial killer's convention is now going to kill her, Gilbert and Matthew arrive, and Gilbert offers his life in exchange for Rose's, an offer which Morpheus explains he cannot accept. Death isn't that bad, Matthew the Raven offers by way of consolation. He reveals, or affirms, that he was once human, but not perhaps a very good one. Gilbert does better. You are the best thing about being human, says Gilbert. After your death, if you do stay in the dreaming, then visit me. Walk in my meadows and my green glades. Rest beneath my trees. Then he returns to his dream state as Fiddler's Green, a sylvan oasis of green and growing things. Meanwhile, in England, Unity Kincaid lies in a liminal space between waking and sleep and sleep and death as her daughter watches over her. She recalls a tall, dark man whose eyes danced like twin stars in her head. And then she dreams and appears in the dreaming as her youthful self, the self she recalls before the sleeping sickness that stole her life. Just as Morpheus cups Rose's jaw, seemingly about to end her life with a kiss, Unity interrupts. She should have been the vortex had she not gone into a coma. She sasses Morpheus and then tells Rose that in exchange for the ring, which Unity once gave her, Rose needs to reach inside herself and give Unity whatever it is that makes Rose the vortex. It is the dreaming, she reminds her granddaughter, and anything is possible. Rose puts her hand inside her chest and removes a crystal heart. Unity takes the heart and places it in her chest, and now she is the vortex. In her room in the waking world, the old Unity dies and wakes inside the dreaming. Now Rose is free to go resume her life. Typing on an electric typewriter, Rose writes journal entries about Hal, the landlord, who has sold his house to the spider women who are coming out of their shell, and Ken and Barbie, who have split up. Barbie has gone seriously weird, she adds, a note to file away for future reference. Rose, her mom and younger brother Jed have all moved into a house outside of Seattle, but Rose is still processing her grief over the events of the series and over the death of her best friend, Judy, whom we met in the diner in the 24 Hours storyline. Rose discovers that Gilbert, whom she hasn't seen again, looked like the writer G.K. Chesterton. But unlike that spiritual soul, she is wrestling with the idea that if her dream was true, then we humans are all just pawns, dolls in a dollhouse. 
In the end, we see Rose cut her hair and go back to her natural shade, a sign that, as she says, she is rejoining the human race. We end with a coda. Dream walks through a gallery and picks up a crystal heart, Desire's sigil, which we have seen before in the scene where Rose pulls it out of her chest. Morpheus walks into his sister brother's realm and confronts them. Desire impregnated unity all those decades ago, which meant that this was a long con, and if Dream had been forced to kill Rose, he would have killed a family member, which is one of the constraints which binds the Endless. Dressed as a cat, Desire tries to hide their fear. When Dream makes himself abundantly clear, he will not stand for this kind of thing again. And if Desire crosses him, they will face not just Dream, but also the elder sibling's death and destiny. Perhaps more frightening for Desire are Dream's other words. We of the Endless are the servants of the living. We are not their masters. Desire, like Rose, tries to brush it off. They are nothing like a doll. Nothing like a doll at all. All right, Elisa. So here we are with Into the Night and Lost Hearts. This is all kind of really interesting. And I cannot wait to get the discussion of Desire. But before we get through all of that, I want to know what is your overall response to this uh, set of issues? Well, we have done a lot of world building here. You know, it, it reminds me of how in classic TV serialized mystery, you get the monster of the week, but you mm -hmm. also get the world building of the core cast of characters. And here we've resolved the monster of the week, the whole storyline of serial killers. Mm -hmm. But what we've done here is learn that there are implications and tensions that are going to reverberate through the rest of the series. We learn that... Um, desire fears cracking like delirium and that they also live in the shadow of the absent endless sibling who abandoned his realm. We also learn about the great taboo of shedding family blood and get a bit more understanding of how the living can become dreams and how dreams can sometimes join the living. There's just overall this deeper sense of how the Endless are a family with alliances and rivalries and really presumably awful Thanksgiving dinners. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but most of all, I think at the very end, we learn that Neil understands, just like Phoebe Waller-Bridge of Fleabag does, the great importance of changing your hair when you are ready <laughs> to start a new chapter in your life. That is hugely important and quite the insight. And I feel like really kind of seen in that moment because I have had exactly that thing. My hair changes every time something significant in my life changes, my hair changes. So uh, that was kind of a fun little note. Um, I really actually enjoyed these two. Like, and it's funny because it contains a lot of stuff that I typically, that, that are like writing devices that I don't particularly care for. Uh, one is the dream sequence and one is the cliffhanger. And for the reasons that I'll explain as we get into it, uh, they both get a pass here uh, for various reasons. Um, but aside from that, like I, I love the artwork, the artwork, the, the aesthetics that are built upon each of these characters that look so different and then they come together in this like 
eclectic crescendo of just imagery and meaning and everything. And it is, um, it's so interesting for me coming in as somebody new to comics, how incredibly powerful the artwork is. You know, part of me as we're doing these really long extended, like, uh, you know, uh, summaries of what goes on, I'm like, you know, should we make these shorter? Are we like giving everything away? But the fact of the matter is that like, nobody is gonna like not buy the comic because we told them what happened. There's so much going on in here in the visuals that we're not going to be able to give away in a podcast. You got to go and buy these comics. They are absolutely amazing. Um, but between these two stories, like I think the the visuals of it and the ways in which the visuals contributed to the storytelling is probably like one of my favorite things about these two issues. Um, and it was really, really fun uh, to kind of dive into that. And, and as I'm slowly week to week gathering, um, you know, something of a of an understanding of the language of comics and really appreciating the visuals, it's becoming just a lot of fun and extra element to the appreciation of hardcore storytelling, which is usually what I go in for. Um, but let's go ahead. And as long as we're going to talk about visuals, we have to start with the McKean cover art. Um, we have Into the Night, you know, with these purplish red hues. We have lace over a grungy wooden background. And the center has a woman's face under that lace with a spider crawling over it. And it is beautiful and horrifying at the same time, which is one of these lovely, you you know, kind of fusions of opposites that I really enjoy. Um, and there's also what appears to be a dragonfly. I don't remember a reference to a dragonfly. Um, but of course, that's one of those things where I'm like, what does that symbolize? What does that mean? Is that something to come? Are we looking at something in the future? Are dragonflies going to be significant to these stories eventually? Or what does it mean? You know, um, and I always think that that's really cool. I I am not remembering a specific uh iconography to dragonflies and i'm sure now that that somebody's going to come in and say oh don't you know it's a symbol of <laughs> literary impotence no, that, that that will be right. a future story literary impotence is a future um yes mm -hmm. but um maybe there there seems to me something about dragonflies that are about impermanence i don't know if mm -hmm. that's just an association to some long ago poem but the idea that dragonflies are this brief i think they have a, perhaps even a briefer moment of living and mating than butterflies mm -hmm. they're, oh, they're the 27 year old rock stars of the of the insect world <laughs> i think i'm not sure i'm just i may be just making that up you know, it's occurring to me now that what we really need to do is get a dream dictionary so that whenever we have an element on a Dave McKean cover that we're like, I don't know what that means, you know, then we can go in and kind of see what the meaning might be. I mean, maybe, maybe Dave had a dream dictionary that he was pulling from. I think we should get two different dream dictionaries, like one, you know, more, more, you know, English Celtic and the other more yes. Russian, whatever. And, and oh, that yes. way we can compare and contrast can pull some different ideas. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, all right. So the Lost Hearts cover um, is orangey, fiery hues. We've got a person sitting on a leather chaise. Um, the fire is 
bursting behind them. Their chest is exposed. Their eyes look like fiery slits. Um, There's empty picture frames everywhere. And what looks like a painting without a frame on its side in front of what looks like a large doll's house. So it looks like to me, like it's desire uh, sitting on the chaise. Um, That person has like a non-binary feel to them. And then they're just sitting there where everything's on fire, which seems to me like something that desire would do. Um, And I think it's interesting that desire as one of the anthropomorphized concepts is the one that everybody has the most problem with, that they're so bad. Um, It's almost Buddhist in philosophy, except that Buddhism usually isn't this passionate. You know, when it sees something as negative, it's just like, that's, that's not good for you. Drop the, drop the hot thing, you know? (laughs) Um, But it's interesting, especially because I personally don't see this volume as being particularly about desire. It starts and it ends with desire. So we've got those lovely bookends going on there, which I love when that happens. Um, And I find it really interesting also, you know, that Desire has been, you know, running this long con on, uh, on Dream, which is really interesting. Um, But yeah, let's let's talk about the rest of the story. I'm gonna see if I can make that connection, because it does kind of feel like we've got a few different stories. Like in this volume, we've got the Corinthian serial killers, serial convention kind of thing. Um, We've got Jed and Rose looking for Jed and Unity and all of that. Then we've got Rose as a vortex. And then it's bookended with desire on either end. Um, and so to me, like, it feels like a lot of pieces that I'm, I'm not sure how they all exactly go together, kind of putting this volume into one piece, but we've got this lovely book ending and kind of, I kind of want to like figure out what the thread is that pulls all of that together. Well, it's interesting because I was reflecting that desire's web is definitely a trap. And it's, it's a different conception of desire from the one that you and I are familiar with in Mm -hmm. romance as a genre. Desire is different from lust in in romance literature. So there's a way in which we think of lust as being just, you know, the kind of undifferentiated horniness that my (laughs) unneutered male dog feels for any large cushion. (laughs) And desire in romance is this very specific longing for a very specific person. And Mm -hmm. in in this world, desire is something else. Desire is is much more that sort of feline fixation with with one particular bird, which it is going to uh, torture systematically until it's finally completely dead. (laughs) But but that, that apart, I was also thinking about how you know, we're talking about universal dreams and 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 symbolism and, and dream mythologies, but we also get glimpses of how all of our dream worlds are quite distinct and quite separate. And I think that those things are both true there. You know, I know that, for example, if you dream about losing your teeth, that is a mortality dream. And yet mm-hmm. each of us have I think our own symbolic systems, for example, you know, the basement of my mom's uh, Upper West Side apartment building has always been a, a symbol of, you know, hell to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think we do all have, you know, as much as like the dream dictionary would give this idea that there's a universal symbolism to particular things. Um, I think that we all have our own particularly you have to write your own dream dictionary, 
you know, you have to like write down your dreams and what the symbols are in them and then kind of puzzle that out in order to be able to like unlock the secrets to your own mind. And everyone is a very um, individual, individual space. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's really, it's so interesting how all of this comes together, how we have all these dream sequences with all of these different spaces that kind of blend into each other. And how dangerous a vortex is, you know, uh, we end up getting, you know, Dream's story of what happened the last time he let a vortex run rampant and it just destroyed a whole universe, you know, like it just, it took everybody out. And so now he knows that he has to kill the vortex. And that's, of course, part of all of this is that bringing all of these different separate dream spaces into one space is incredibly dangerous. Yes. So, um... So when we look at how the vortex operates in the dreaming, it's like a cancer of the imagination. And mm -hmm. what it's doing is by breaking down the, the separation between things that ought to be separate, it is working this massive destruction on the body of the dreaming. And we mm -hmm. see that the body of the dreaming like dreaming itself serves some very vital purpose to our waking worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's it's really important. And we all need to have that space. You know, the fact that we turn to stories, you know, when we sleep, um, I think is, is kind of a fascinating element of human existence that that is so normal because we're so used to it. But when you think about it, it's it's important, you know, it's significant. And um, it's funny because in storytelling, ironically, I typically really hate dream sequences. Um, and the reason why I usually don't like them is because they often come up at times when and I will I will say, like, in my first novel, I'm totally guilty of this. I didn't know what to write. I wrote a dream sequence to patch me from one place to the other and just kind of figure it out. And instead of taking it out after the drafting process, I just left it in there, you know, without really knowing what it meant. It didn't mean anything, you know. Um, so I think that like sometimes dream sequences can be used uh, for that. Sometimes they're used to add an air of mystery and, and symbolism and all of that to something that, that feels rather, um, I think in a lot of instances for me with dream sequences feels unearned. Now, of course... In the dreaming, in Sandman, dream sequences are hugely narratively important and absolutely narratively relevant. And I love the fact that we um, we don't, I think, in Sandman really go to them necessarily in the way that a lot of times um, that a lot of times you see them just kind of shoved into something where they don't really have, you know, a, a connection to the actual narrative. Um, and here it is. It's all about the dreaming. It's all about you know, what we do in that space, in the dreaming, you know? Um, so I think it's, um, it's, it's interesting and absolutely the dream sequences get a pass, especially, especially because of the art opportunities that come up in really getting a sense of all these different dream spaces. I mean, you look at Barbie and Ken's dream spaces, you're like, these people do not belong together. <laughs> Well, I think that, yes, no, they absolutely don't. And mm -hmm. and if if you could see the dreams of the person sleeping next to you, it might be a great relationship test for whether or not, you know, oh, if, yeah. your, if your imaginary <laughs> worlds do not align, mm -hmm. perhaps this is not the right 
person for you, which reminds me of this wonderful 80s film. I can't remember. I know that there was a a man who was uh, the the main female character was schizophrenic. And at some Mm -hmm. point, you know, uh, she is asked if she is in a romantic relationship with this guy who's who's happens to be gay. But her response is, oh, no, we sleep in different worlds. (laughs) yeah very very true and i think that like you know to a certain degree we absolutely all do um and uh you know i love um again to go back like to the art and the way that the art is expressed um in this house and here we have this house it's it's all about boundaries and what happens when those boundaries are broken down and that boundaries in and of themselves are not always a bad thing sometimes you need limitations on things like for any, you know, writer who's gone up against a blank page without any limitations, without anything like you have to do this. It can be the lack of boundaries can be overwhelming. Having a limitless space can be really overwhelming and dreams by their nature are both limited and unlimited, you know, because I've had, I've been in planes that have crashed into the ocean and just become boats. You know, like I've had that experience in dreams before, you know, so it is um, it is limited and it's ephemeral and it is um, like constant metamorphosis. You know, it's it's so fascinating to see that represented here. Yes. Well, a couple of things occur to me as you're, you're saying this. One is that in in this universe, dreams don't operate the way dreams ordinarily do. Because mm-hmm. essentially they are dreams in the same way that Narnia is, yeah. it, they are, they are, it is a separate realm. And so it, it mm-hmm. you know, a dream sequence in the Sandman isn't really a, a dream sequence at all. What it is, is it's, it's a trip, you know, to the other side of the wardrobe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was one thought that occurred to me. And the other is that, you know, in these different art styles, one thing that we can see again and again is how much um, Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III working together are really able to convey the relationships between people. And mm-hmm. it's, I don't know if I've spoken about it before, it's something called acting when yeah. the way an artist conveys the emotion and the the back and forth of emotion between two or more people. So I know that for me, it is one of the most important underrated aspects of the art in comics. And when I have looked for artists, I've talked to editors about, I want someone who is really good at acting. Oh, I love that. So it's about pacing. It is about the nuance of how close uh, two people are standing together and whether that closeness feels threatening or erotic or both. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And between Morpheus and Rose, we definitely get a hint of, of both of those things. I think if a different artistic team were on this book, you might get other wonderful aspects, but for this very sensual and um, and somewhat malign storyline, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. th- this is really a, a, a perfect kind of, of uh, art choice, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. And then when we get to that part, you know, where we have Rose, I mean, Rose is pretty much naked. She's just sort of surrounded in this toga-esque sheet that seems to cover up most of her 
but not always all, you know, we just get this sense of her having this, um, you know, this, this kind of magical sort of almost goddess uh, type of presence um, in the dreaming while she's trying to figure out what's going on. And he's saying he's going to kill her, you know? Um, yeah. But her nudity is, first of all, her body language is always very specific to who she is as a character. She mm -hmm. conveys a relaxation, sort of a casualness with how she wears her body that feels mm -hmm. like the essence of youthfulness. Uh, she's, yeah. She is not posing or self-conscious or trying to seduce. And, and so what is sensual about her is that sense of relaxation and confidence in her naked body. She is, when, when I see her body, I don't feel like I am looking at her through this, you know, male gaze kind of a, a lens. Mm -hmm. It, it yeah. struck me how in the first Wonder Woman movie, there's this moment where Gal Gadot is rising up out of a World War One trench to fight mm -hmm. the good fight. And what I noticed was what wasn't there. I noticed yeah. that the, you know, as we rise with the camera, we're rising with her. And at no point do we see the delectable undercurve of her ass. And I've yeah. gotten so used to that. Like, of course, mm -hmm. you're going to follow, you know, good, the camera will cup her ass. It didn't do that. And... Mm -hmm even though I, I am a great admirer of Gal Gadot's ass and, and all her parts, <laughs> I started to tear up at just mm -hmm. being able to experience her as heroic. So where that camera angle is in relationship yeah. to um, Wonder Woman's nude, you know, body and, mm -hmm. and to Rose's nudity, it, they both feel like they are, we are with the character instead of lusting after her. Yeah, which, by the way, in the 90s, hats off to that, you know, that we are, we can see a woman's body without it being this, like, you know, um, objectifying male gaze kind of thing. It's okay to see a woman's body. It's the way in which that body is shown that makes all the difference. I had a similar experience watching uh, Black Panther for the first time, that the women were treated like human people. You know, which seems like not a lot to ask, you know, but they were treated like people with their own thoughts and ideas and motivations and everything. They just happened to also be women and they were dressed in a way that let them be beautiful while at the same time not being objectified. Um, and it is it is a real like a breath of relief. It's almost like you don't it's like you're so used to being slapped that when you're not slapped, it's this weird moment where you're like, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? And you have to actually like sit and think about it because we're so used to it. And to have that now is, you know, has been shocking and wonderful to see that happen more and more where we're getting away from that male gaze way of looking at women to have that experience in the 90s, you know, reading a comic book of all things, you know, um, that's incredible. That's wonderful. Um, one of the things I really love about uh, Rose in this is one of the things that she said, she says that everyone's dreams are them searching for a place to belong. 
Um, and I find that an interesting idea because so much of human existence is about the search for a community that fits. And the interesting thing about the dreaming as its own universe is that it is kind of a bubble universe, right? It's one bubble with lots of little bubbles in between, and they do remain distinct, except when the vortex comes in and starts mixing everything all up together. Um, so I find it really interesting that we just kind of drop this one little note about what everyone is searching for, like what is their desire, you know, for the community that fits, for the place that is right for them. And it's a tiny little moment. It's just a throwaway line, but it was really significant to me when I read it. I really like that. Mm. Yeah, it, it's making me think about a dinner party. I think it's it's going to come up in season of mists where we get to see mm -hmm. that we the dreamers are sometimes mm -hmm. drafted into serving at the banquets in in the dreaming oh. and so uh <laughs> yeah so it's uh, just a little note to myself i'm suddenly remember this moment where there are two dreamers who are just regular living people who are dreaming and they are having a moment of connection as they serve at mm -hmm. this banquet in the dreaming um, but oh, that God, is a all, wonderful all to come. idea. <laughs> I can't wait to see that. Um, yeah, that, it's just I, I really like a lot of these uh, concepts that sort of come in and float in throughout this story. They're like little it feels like a magpie just weaving in little pieces of glitter, you know, throughout. It's kind of neat. Um, and one of the things too, like I said, there are two uh, writing devices that have been used in, in these uh, issues that I don't typically like. Again, dream sequences, total pass. Absolutely. It's part of the universe. It's narratively significant. Totally works. Love every minute of it. Um, the cliffhanger, I usually do not enjoy. I appreciate that there is a, um, you know, a publishing need sometimes for that. You've got a story that just goes, it's too much for one issue, and you've got to split it up between the months. And so you cut it in the middle. And I get that. Um, I, I didn't appreciate it in television when they would give you a cliffhanger, and then you'd have to wait the whole summer and then wait to find out what happened. Now that uh, binging television is a thing and having the whole volume that I can read, so I don't have to wait between um, Into the Night and Lost Hearts, um, it doesn't bother me quite as much. But yeah, like I, I like a complete narrative. If I get an issue of something, I want a complete narrative in there. Um, and I, I get why it had to be. It's all right. It's fine. But um, one of the things, though, that I always talk about when I talk about cliffhangers is, you know, game changers versus cliffhangers. And game changers are when at the end of a story, we know what's happened, but it's so monumentally changed everything that the idea of what is going to happen next is what draws you in as opposed to um, we don't know what's happened. And now we're going to, you know, to be continued until next time. Um, so I usually appreciate a game changer a little bit more. But here, I was able to read both of them at once. So it didn't really bother me as much as it usually does. Well, you know, I think that the, we all tend to forget how much the format in which something mm -hmm. was originally released shapes the storytelling. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I, you know, back when when Sandman first came out, the the mandate was keep somebody so hooked in that a month mm -hmm. later they will go back and and buy another issue. Yeah. I mean, some of them are 
uh, some of the readers would have been subscribers, but a lot of them would have been going to a comic book store um, mm -hmm. and having to remember, you know, oh, it's time for, for right. me to buy this next issue. So you, you can see that now still in the DNA of the story. I think binge watching has shaped how we how stories are crafted, because we, mm -hmm. we expect that people will want to immediately satisfy that urge. But I see yeah. now that there is this uh, movement into shorter serialized stories again. I, mm -hmm. I'm seeing, uh, especially in audiobooks, there are these little stories that are now being chunked into 15-minute bites. Uh, mm -hmm. Sorry. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how, um, I, I, you know, how that is going to affect the storytelling. And I, I'm sure I'm mm -hmm. going to screw this up, but there's that old, what is it? The medium is the message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that this? Yeah. This is that, right? Where it's it's the the, the format influencing yeah, the, form. the telling yeah. of the mm -hmm. story itself. It does. It has a huge influence on it. And, um, you know, back in the day and understanding that you guys were laying the track down as the train was coming, that this was a month to month kind of thing that you had to stay on that, you know, deadline in order to get to the next one. Um, you know, it's it's interesting how form does it does interact with the way that we tell stories and the methods that we use to tell stories. So it's always kind of interesting. And the cliffhanger, you know, is like cliffhangers always drive me crazy, but I get it. Like I understand why people did it and why, and why in here we've really got a double issue. We've got a story that needed more than just what one issue would give you. And we're going to end up talking about how, what changes or doesn't change when this goes from being a story that was written to appear once a month to being mm -hmm. a Netflix series that presumably yes. people will be binging and arriving to work bleary eyed and, and barely confess mentis. <laughs> I'm very, very much looking forward to that. I cannot wait to see this translated. Um, and one of the things, of course, that I want to see translated and I'm very excited for this is Gilbert. Um, Gilbert, who is probably one of my favorite things um, about this this volume. Um, it's uh, he's so fun. The fact that he's based on G.K. Chesterton and he's got that kind of avuncular sort of sense to him is really nice. Um, but I love that he is just he's really, you know, tenderly devoted to Rose. You know, he rushes to Rose's side and Matthew asks him why, you know, you know, you can't change anything. And Gilbert says, I don't think I can help, but I can hope and I can pray. And again, you know, if we're talking back to how does all this work with desire, right? You know, um, hope is what we chase. You know, hope is what we go after. Just that sense that there is possibility that things could be better. It's why we don't give up. So hope is one of the things that we most desire you know, and that we go after. And that's what he's going after. Um, and I love him, you know, as Fiddler's Green when he's talking to Matthew and he's trying to explain who he is. And he says, my dear bird, you seem to be laboring under misapprehension. Fiddler's Green is not a who, it's a where. I was not a person, Matthew. I was a place. Um, and the idea that a place can have consciousness and personality and any of us who have 
had a love affair with a place or in the circumstance of my house, a hate affair with a particular place. Um, you do <laughs> feel like there is personality there. Like there is sentience and agency in some sense to particular places. And the jump from that to a place in the dreaming, a dream being able to live as a man is such an interesting idea. It, it is a fascinating idea. I love the the world building that goes on here where we see that a place can become a character in the dreaming. Mm -hmm. um, in Stardust, which was originally, before it was a movie, I think it became a comic too, but first it was sort of an mm -hmm. illustrated story with glorious artwork by Charles Vess, um, who mm -hmm. is just one of the great modern masters of fairy art. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, in Stardust, the heroine is a star. And when she mm -hmm. comes into fairyland, she is translated into an anthropomorphization. Um, mm -hmm. Also, she becomes Claire Danes. But um, <laughs> that's, that, that is obviously in the movie. One mm -hmm. of the things I, I'm spacing on who voices G.K. Chesterton's Gilbert in the audible version. But there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's this little um, whom, H-O-O-M yes. that we see. And I, I I sort of heard it as this flemmy, but plummy, plummy, flemmy old man whom. And it, but in the <laughs> audible, it's it's done wonderfully. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I should have looked that up. But yeah, it's, it's, mm -hmm. It's going to be really interesting to see that incarnated also in, in a, a character in the Netflix series. It makes me want to go back and reread G.K. Chesterton. I had not read him mm -hmm. in the 90s. And uh, Bob Morales, who's a, a wonderful writer, uh, no longer with us, said, you haven't read The Man Who Was Thursday. And he, uh, <laughs> he introduced me to uh, G.K. Chesterton's writing. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, and I can absolutely recommend the Audible uh, series. The um, second series just came out. Uh, so that's a little bit ahead of us where we are now. Um, but I was both uh, in the early parts of this, both reading and listening to um, the Audible book. Um, and it does, because the people who created it, you know, Neil was involved in it, are also doing the sound it is another level on which you get nuance and and information that you maybe didn't have from reading it and from looking at the visuals we get another there's another layer to that onion there um and i would absolutely heartily recommend it it is so amazingly worth Whatever the price is on it, it's not it's, it's not enough. It's so amazingly done. It's mm -hmm. so delicious to, you know, mm -hmm. you go from creating the audio soundtrack when you're reading the comic to yeah. creating the visual. So the you're, you know, with the audible. So it's it's mm -hmm. in both. You are really very much a participant in co-creating the world yeah because it's a performance not a reading that is a full performance and it is just unbelievably done with really amazing actors uh just killing it in that in that audio version um which makes me even look forward to the netflix version even more oh yeah you know, it's yeah and you get to hear neil narrating mm -hmm. yeah the narrative bits and neil mm -hmm. just tells really good bedtime stories one of the first times um, that I met him, I ended up going back uh, to his house where he was living with um, he, his first wife, Mary, and, and their kids who were then little. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and he started to tell, 
I think it was Holly mainly that he was telling a bedtime story. And and I ended up just sitting on the edge of the bed and listening to Neil read a bedtime story, which is very similar to the experience I think you get when you're listening to him narrate the audible. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful thing. And this is not we're not getting paid for this This is not a commercial We're just I just like literally is wonderful. And I have to say that I am very excited to be discovering Sandman now, when there are so many forms to enjoy and looking forward to the Netflix series, because there's a lot of really amazing things that I think if I had discovered it back in the 90s, when it was coming out in comic books, I would have been hungry for all of this stuff that we have now. So I'm very excited about that. Um, So here we get to Rose, right, who is a vortex once in every era there is a vortex one girl in all the world <laughs> you know sorry i'm going into my buffy <laughs> thing um and and you know the thing i do not know why she is special for no real reason um and it seems like a big thing not to know you know especially because dream has decided that the only solution for this issue this problem is to like a murder a girl so um that seems like a question you'd ask and try to find the answer to again the universe is a mysterious place dream doesn't have access to all of the answers but still, that seems like a, a really, really big deal. Um, but the consequence, of course, of not killing the vortex means that everybody dies. So, and he knows, as he says, death is not always a bad thing, Rose, you know. Um, and he offers her to stay here in the dream world. And the unsaid portion of that is with me. There is kind of a sense a sense, and it, I think it's more in the visual necessarily than in the text itself, but there is a sense, a sense of some sort of attraction and maybe a little bit of a seduction uh, going on here between them. And she is Desire's da- daughter, so, mm-hmm. or granddaughter? Desire's granddaughter. Desire's granddaughter, as we will find out, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Of course, she's going to have, you know, uh, a lot of allure built into her DNA. I am mm-hmm. I don't remember having seen the script, but I am confident that if that was if that sense of attraction was being conveyed in the artwork, I'm sure it was in the script. Mm-hmm. I do think that in addition to the taboo against the spilling of blood, the taboo against perhaps getting to you know, flirty with your grand with your, niece. Yeah, grand niece, great niece. There is great, great niece. There's, there's great niece, a little, think, yeah. I'm having a little bit of a, hmm. I think that would be a really interesting, interesting thing. Um, luckily, it does not come to that uh, because once again, our damsel Rose is rescued, uh, not by man this time, but by Unity, who is not fucking around. She comes in, she looks at Sandman. She's like, you're obviously not very bright, but I shouldn't let it bother you. Um, and she says, give me your heart. And then, and this is so interesting. So then Rose pulls out from her chest a heart-shaped crystal piece of glass, um, which reminds me of Tales in the Sand, the blue heart-shaped crystals um, that they found, which of course, and then again, glass is made from sand, right? So here we have red and blue, like these two kind of like opposed, almost opposing colors, you know? Um, and, um, And then, but the heart, the crystal heart is also the symbol for desire. So I'm assuming that this is the moment when dream sees the the heart-shaped crystal that that's when he's on to exactly what has happened here and exactly who rose is yes and it 
it occurs to me, I, I did not know in the 90s what I now understand, which is that the way we inherit things can be very odd. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. let's say all the people who might say, you know, I have a, you know, a, my great grandmother was, you know, half Sue. And the truth mm -hmm. is that the way inheritance goes, somebody could have then a, a lot of DNA from that great grandparent or none at all. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's something about the symbolism of that crystal heart that says to me that whoever has that aspect of desire, it's like they've inherited not just an incredible uh, allure and attractiveness, but in some way, what does desire do? Desire makes us break down the boundaries between us. And so mm -hmm. there, there is some way that there might be a connection between being desire's granddaughter and between mm -hmm. being someone who breaks down the boundaries between another, between dreamers. Mm -hmm. Well, and dream and desire as words have a very similar meaning. I mean, in some circumstances, they are synonyms, right? What is your dream job, right? What is the job that you desire? It's the same thing, you know? Um, so it's it's really interesting how there's so much about the two of them that reflects on each other. And sometimes I wonder if that isn't the reason why it's so difficult uh, for them to get along, you know? Um, so I think that that's, it's just, it's really interesting. And I love to, I feel like there's gotta be something to the fact that this heart, although a different color looks almost exactly like the heart that was found in the desert, the pieces of, you know, fused sand that became heart shaped that were found in the desert that have gone cold because they're blue. This one is hot and warm and red. Um, it's just interesting. That I feel was, like there's got to be a, well, a line there. Well, I think mm -hmm. that part of that connection is just that. So the desert was the desert of the tribe um, of whom Nada was queen. And mm -hmm. so we see with both times that Dream has gotten involved, his, you know, his, his, his most difficult sibling has, has yeah. left little breadcrumbs behind it's 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 yeah. a very it's a you know it's like that brady bunch special where the family all <laughs> went to hawaii and got the cursed whatever that was right yeah um, oh my god i'd long forgotten about that I've, but yeah <laughs> it's taken me a long time you know but i think there is a brady bunch element to the endless you know yeah oh god yes definitely Except i think There's, i think yeah. marcia would be desire uh-huh um, so which one is Jan? Is Jan um, despair? I think Jan Marcia, is despair. Marcia, Marcia. Yeah, Jan is yeah. definitely despair. Um, who is Cindy's delirium? Cindy is delirium. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Let's not spoil too much. We will definitely come back to this discussion later, though, when we when we map everybody to uh, who they are in the Brady Bunch. But um, so another thing I wanted to talk about um, is once again here we are with Dream with empathy as a power play. You know, once again someone is saved. And Dream closes out that rescue by extending empathy. In the morning, Jed will wake up. You know, he gives Jed back um, to this family. Um, and it's an interesting thing that we return to 
Once again, after a tragedy, one dream in this case was about to be party to, he tries to do some good. And uh, I have some thoughts on that pattern, which I'm going to, I think, close up when we get to Calliope, because there's a there's a bigger discussion to be had there. Um, but I find it really just every time he does this, it it opens up another kind of question space for me on like, what is that actually about? I find that really interesting. I love how you find the emotional motifs and through lines, uh, mm -hmm. which I think are very much present. But yes, I think that every storyline that we encounter shows some kind of pressure and some kind of growth for dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really I, I kind of love that because this story has so many other elements in which you could get away with not having that. Um, but that emotional anchor, you know, that growth, that um, that kind of like pushing himself, um, it's it's just it's such an interesting thing to watch. And the way that his empathy has evolved since having a tragedy fall upon him, you know, and we're in we're in something of a trauma narrative. I find it really interesting. And I, I love those moments. Those are, are kind of my favorite moments as we revisit them. Every time I see one, I'm like, oh, there we go. That's his thing, you know. Um, so in the first epilogue, right, I guess we have an epilogue and we have a coda, right? Uh, so the epilogue, we've got Rose. She cuts and dyes her hair, right? So we see the hair is everything. Hair is, is everything. hugely symbolic. She's done this thing. But also one of the interesting things is that she talks about her friend Judy and we actually see Judy call Rose and asking if she's seen Donna in the harrowing 24 hours um, from the first volume um, so we see Rose you know kind of bringing that in. and once again let me just say it again every part of the pig like we're pulling everything in nothing goes wasted um, at a Neil Gaiman story table um, and Rose is also at this point questioning if her dream was true and we're getting her in this deeply philosophical moment where she's like if my dream was true then everything we know everything we think we know is a lie we're all just dolls you know and then at the end she decides to just let it go and then she woke up I suppose there are worse endings you know it's um it's really kind of neat the way that we sort of walk Rose through this whole philosophical gambit of what am I going to decide I believe happened here, you know, that she gets to make a choice that will define her reality that she lives in. And she's not making that choice based on what she thinks actual reality is. She's making that choice based on what is the reality that best suits her, you know? And that's very existentialist, the idea yeah. that there may not be an inherent meaning, but it's incumbent upon us to you know, to to create right. that meaning. I, I remember uh, reading somewhere my my favorite definitions of nihilism, existentialism, and absurdism. Uh, <laughs> nihilism being, there's no meaning inherent in anything. Existentialism, well, yeah, there's no meaning in anything, but you have to create it. And mm -hmm. uh, absurdism, well, you have to create it. It's all going to go to shit anyway, but you got to <laughs> laugh. <laughs> That is wonderful. I love that. Um, yeah. And, and it's it's funny because I've read a little bit of Camus, you know, just enough to be like, wow, that's a lot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, absurdism, um, you know, as a, as a philosophical treatise is one of these things where it's just it, it, to me, it just seems like fuck it. 
you know, might as well, <laughs> you know, you might as well play, right? You know, if you're going to be here. Um, so uh, the second epilogue are actually more of a coda, right? We've got a, this final bookend after the beginning where we uh, we met with Desire. Um, and uh, Dream uses Desire's sigil uh, to call them. He accuses them of meddling with Rose and Unity. Um, and he wants to know who Rose's grandfather was. Um, and they go through this whole, you know, kind of back and forth. Um, and what I love, too, is we of the endless are servants of the living. We are not their masters. And desire sees people as dolls, right? And this whole thing, like when you come back to it, the doll's house, the house as a symbol that has all these different rooms where there are boundaries between people. Um, but then when they open up, it kind of breaks everything down. And who are the dolls? You know, who are the ones? We exist because they know deep in their hearts that we exist. We do not manipulate them. If anything, they manipulate us. We are their toys, their dolls. Um, and it's so interesting. Again, here we are at the end of this whole story, which has had all of this stuff going on. We've had serial killers. We've had dreams who were men and men who were dreams. All of this stuff going on, a vortex about to threaten humanity. But we are ending on two notes of philosophy. You know, who are we to them? Who are they to us? And what do you do with that? You know, um, it's it's really interesting to see that discussion. And And I do think that, in this universe, both things are true. There are some mm -hmm. ways in which um, mortals are the playthings of the endless. We can see at moments and subject to their mm -hmm. to their machinations, and yet ultimately, the endless are there in service of the mortals. And mm -hmm. so it's it's a it's an odd and reciprocal relationship. I. You know, I was also thinking about how I started out by talking about how the desire as an anthropomorphized emotion mm -hmm. uh, is is different in this universe than it is um, in the universe of, of romance landia. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, I, OK, I'm just going to take a step back and say that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I felt pretty confident saying, well, you know, this is this is what it's like in, you know, male centric fiction versus this is more what it's like in women centric fiction. These days, I feel less secure in talking about anyone who is not me, because you yeah, know, I think right. we're aware that there is so much more than, you know, men and women and also just the binary you know, mm -hmm. one you know do I really have access even to another woman's reality no any more than I have mm -hmm. access to men's realities but saying that I I think that as a woman when I think about desire and wanting to be desired it there there is something reciprocal like I can't Mm -hmm. separate out my desire to be desired in return. And there's something yeah. about the way desire feels much more one directional in, in, in terms mm -hmm. of for all that desire is non-binary, there's something about the way they operate that feels mm -hmm. a little more masculine to me. In, mm -hmm. in that I, I think about how 
and again, I, I don't know if this, this, this may be me thinking too much on the fly. And afterwards, I'm like, why <laughs> did I start to talk about this in the podcast when I hadn't thought it through properly? Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think about, as I so often do, 70s pornos and how, <laughs> and how in a 70s porno, you know, you, the men don't seem uh-huh. to worry. Like, why would this beautiful young blonde woman desire me? A strangely schlubby <laughs> middle-aged man. There's none of that self-doubt. It's just like, yes, she wants me. Right. And, uh-huh. and so... <laughs> And again, I don't mean to be uh, casting aspersions on the schlubby or the middle-aged, uh, mm-hmm. both groups uh, which I, I partake in. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I'm wondering if there might be another incarnation of desire that mm-hmm. reflects more this concern with being desired as well as with desiring, which is more reflective uh, self-reflective and and mm-hmm. not just um, pushing itself out to affect others and move dolls around in the dollhouse. I kind of love that. I hadn't really thought about a, you know, a kind of masculine versus a feminine approach to desire, but I definitely do see uh, this as more of like a masculine perception of desire going one way and not thinking about how it comes back. Um, and what it is to be desired, you know, um, and desire as a bad thing is always something that I'm, I was surprised when we first saw uh, death and dream kind of uh, bitch slapping desire in absentia, you know, um, in the in the sound of her wings at the end of the first volume. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting how it is, it does feel to me to be a somewhat male perspective of a conquest of desire, that you desire something, you go after it, and in wanting something that uh, that ends up causing problems, just the wanting of something. But the idea that someone may want you back, you know, that it can be, it can go both ways, which I think is that feminine approach to desire, which is what we do see in romance novels. Absolutely. And... Um, now that I've had a chance to also just think for two seconds about what I said <laughs> unscripted and without yeah. planning, I think <laughs> that both um, human sexuality and male and female sexuality changes over time. And mm-hmm. my personal theory is that a lot of what used to be generalized about male sexuality was cisgender, heterosexual male sexuality, mm-hmm. Yes, was speaking about male sexuality, say, before the age of 40, before the age in which you're supposed to start studying Kabbalah. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and I I think that in some ways, for all that the endless are ancient beings, I think developmentally, they are in their late teens to early 20s, roughly. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. you know, give them a few more millennia and who knows what they might become. How they might. Yeah. I mean, clearly, you know, and this is a bit of a spoiler, um, but uh, but yeah, like it's, it's as we get into delirium, we see that delirium has, in fact, gone through a transition and the, the cracking like delirium is what desire is afraid of. Ooh, and we've just discovered that there was another sibling who, uh, mm-hmm. like the Duke of, wait, which, which the, the, the English, 
Wallace Simpson and um, Edward the yes, Eighth. Edward yes, the one who abdicated. Edward the Eighth, right? I think yes. Anyway, yes, yeah, him. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've got we've got just as the monarchy in England seems to be, you know, very worried about members abdicating and walking away. We've got with the mm-hmm. endless also the one who got away, and yeah. um, and that. That is another big taboo that has been crossed, and we're going to, uh, we're going to, I mean, certainly that is the beginning of of cognizance that there is a mystery about this missing endless. So, Lonnie, we've gotten to Mm -hmm. the section where we each call out our favorite page. What is yours? Mm -hmm. Oh, God, you know, it's this panel. Um, I love typographical art. Um, And in this panel, we have one half of the panel as Chantal holding a book peering out from behind a white wall. And on the wall is the text that says Chantal is having a relationship with a sentence, just one of those things, a chance meeting that grew into something important for both of them. Um, And the thing is, is that the the text itself is not written the way that the dialogue is written. It's hugely stylized. It's incredibly beautiful. And the thing is, I've always wanted a tattoo and I've never been able to choose one. You know, because I'm always like, well, then you got to have it on forever. And I am, I am a, a being of the ephemeral. I am of the moment. I, I change my mind about what I love, you know, from week to week or what I want. Um, but looking at that panel, I was like, oh my God, I would totally get that tattoo. It is so awesome. You've just got that half of her face. You see the book, you see the text. It's just so beautiful. I love that page. How about you? What's your favorite page? Well, I love the moment where Rose rests her head on Fiddler's Green and asks if there's anything they can do to stop, you know, to stop Dream from from killing her. And her despair and his very parental grief just Mm -hmm. comes so it comes across so well in the artwork. And I think that at a stage in my life where I've been hit with some losses and thinking about mm-hmm. mortality, I think there's yeah. this sense that we all can can want to escape that moment. And having the solace of this man who is a place um, and a place where you can go to, it's, it's, you know, what better place for a grave, really, than Fiddler's mm-hmm. Green. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's really beautiful. Um, Okay, so what's your favorite part? What is my favorite part? I think it's got to be Unity kind of sassy. I'm imagining her with a little snappy finger saying, you know, you're obviously not very bright, but I shouldn't let it bother you. (laughs) And um, I I think there may also be a tie. I remember in the 90s just adoring where Rose is flying with Morpheus. And, you know, the Dringenberg Mm. Morpheus is... I think, you know, arguably the hottest Morpheus. If you know, <laughs> he's, he's the young Johnny Depp Morpheus. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I love that. Do you know what Freud said about dreams of flying? It re- means that you're really dreaming about having sex. And, mm-hmm. um, and Morpheus's response, tell me then, what does it mean when you dream about having sex? I think on reflection, it probably depends on what kind of sex you're dreaming about having. If it's like 1970s porno sex, God only knows. <laughs> it comes with a pizza. Uh, my favorite, 
<laughs> my favorite part. I love the meeting of Gilbert and Matthew. Um, there's something so nice about that, that reflective symmetry of a man who used to be a dream and a dream who used to be a man meeting in this like kind of liminal space and understanding each other and kind of buddy copping a little bit, which I really loved. I thought that was kind of fun. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast, or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers, if the cuckoo's forces mean to attack us directly, they must do it before we reach the brightly shining sea. To find out how you, too, can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about the show. Or reach inside yourself and give me whatever it is that makes you the vortex. <laughs> this episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, farewell, my dear. You were the best thing about being human. We'll be back next time with Calliope, issue 17 of the Sandman series and the first of Dream Country. Until then, if my dream is true, then everything we know, everything we think we know, is a lie. <laughs> <laughs>